Greetings ladies and mendelgents and welcome to this video for the narration of the web series Undead, written by Nine Keys and taken from the website Royal Road. In this video we'll be doing chapters 27 and 28, and as always I hope that you enjoy, and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 27, The Bug That Beheld The Watcher when Vanlith returned to awareness, he found himself standing in the middle of a dead grove. Twisted branches loomed overhead like talons of a bird of prey. Their blackened trunks and scorched bones of giants, there were few trees near the cottage, meaning that he had travelled quite some distance in his madness. Nearby, there stood a tree that had a massive chunk scourged out of it, as if some beast had been sharpening its claws on the bark. Checking his hands, told him that it was no animal. Some of the nails had chipped off, and his fingertips were raw and oozing black blood. The rest of his body had suffered numerous injuries, scrapes and bruises. Nothing major. What had he been doing? He felt at one side for his sword, but it was nowhere to be found. Without it, he felt strangely naked. The twig snapped behind him, turning he saw a ghoul standing some distance away, partially concealed by a branch. He became alert upon realizing that it was neither Anamu nor Kalakai. Instead, the reanimated Barney of Arimo was gazing at him with cool eyes, a safe distance away. Are you yourself? Arimo asked with a spirit tongue. He was as fluent as if he'd been speaking it all his life. Vanilith inspected himself. He felt fragile. It wasn't only the lack of a sword. It was a weakness born of knowledge that he was nothing, a mere insect. This was the fact that he held no longer ignore. No matter how much more capable he became, before whatever that thing was, he was powerless. Only now did he realize that he'd been marked. Ever since the ritual where the necromancer had placed a death stone within him, he had been watched by that thing, that eye. The reason why it acted now was unclear but he sensed that it had been a rebuke. A simmering dissatisfaction bubbled under the surface of his skin, the remnants of the uh, lesson he received after giving in to his blind rage and striking down the necromancer. Whatever the eye was, it hadn't been pleased with him for that. I am myself, he replied. Tell me what happened. Arimo stepped forward. I can do that, but first I need to know, will you attempt to strike down the mistress again? So she yet lives. Despite not knowing what to think of this information, he kept his thoughts hidden and replied, That depends on her. Arimo nodded. That is enough, then. I was sent to ascertain your state of mind, and to report back if you had recovered. It appears that whatever demon struck down the two of you afflicted you more severely, Vanilith. You have been out here for the better part of a day. Had he truly? Vanilith tried to bring up his memory of recent events, but it was all a blur. It was just a cold terror of the eye dominating his entire conscience. Now, there was also the deadened feeling of his limbs that spoke of exhaustion, making it easier to believe Arimo's words. Then, something he said caught up to him. What do you mean by struck by the two of you? asked Banalith. Are you saying someone else was beset by the madness? Arimo blinked. Our mistress, of course, though she recovered hours ago. She claimed it was some side effect of the ritual that raised us. Though, she, well, she's recovered now, speaking of the ritual. You have my thanks for preserving my spirit the way that you did. I never expected to be able to walk these lands once again, and I should thank you for doubly for upholding your pact. 
I looked, but I did not see my daughter amongst the bodies. I take it she escaped. Manalith nodded, not bothering to correct the misconception. As far as he knew, he had never seen the man's daughter. Perhaps she truly had been within the camp and escaped. If that was the case, it wasn't like he intended to hunt her down, so he had fulfilled his part of the bargain with ease. In truth, their pact hadn't even crossed his mind until the man mentioned it, though the agreement had formed with Orimo had been triggering events that introduced him to the Ith for the first time. No, though he kept calling it that, it wasn't a mere eye. A glance at its status was enough to tell him the name of the being who'd been I belonged to, the Dread Sovereign. He forcibly pulled his mind away from the bog, continually thinking of it did him no good, so he distracted himself by listening to the hunter. According to Orimo, the other hunters he killed had been returned to their former bodies as newborn ghouls, though they weren't capable of speech. Vanilith recalled the spirits that had been painfully dug out from within him during the ritual, Orimo must have been amongst them, as had these other six or seven that he had killed. Then, his curiosity aroused by Orimo's temperament, he inspected his conversational partner. Vanilith remembered something similar that had happened to Kaipo after the first ritual he'd taken part in, where Vanilith had been merged with the Deathstone. Then, he had dragged the boy's spirit out of the Deathstone as a side effect of preserving his own spirit. After the ritual had completed, he brushed against his corpse, unexpectedly animating him. Was this the same thing that had happened to Orimo and the others? There was a distinct difference between Kaipo and Orimo. The boy had been horrified of his new form, while Orimo appeared uh, perfectly fine. Could this be attributed to simple differences in personality? Or something else? The hunter had been the fiercest opponent he'd ever faced, but as a spirit, Orimo seemed rather ambivalent, and that seemed to carry over to the ghoulish form. What made the boy so different? No answer was forthcoming, and after a moment, he glossed over the question. The weak didn't interest him. Then Vanilith remembered something else, and he interrupted Orimo. Since I upheld our pack, I take it your side of the agreement still holds. You told me you could train me. Orimo laughed. It sounded like something caught in his throat. Eager to get started, are we? Before that, I need to report your condition back to the mistress. Wait. That's strange. I don't feel the compulsion. Compulsion, yes. Until now, I had an urge to return to the mistress and report like she commanded me. Oh, I can see now. I can ignore her orders so long as I'm fulfilling our agreement. How about that? Teaching you takes priority over the mistress's orders. Ha! Huh. She won't like that. Rather than sharing Orimo's mirth, a sour taste filled Vanilla's mouth. It didn't surprise him that this contract took precedence, after all, hadn't it been presided over by the dread sovereign itself. No matter how he tried, his mind always returned to that subject. Suddenly, he no longer wanted to see Orimo. Go on, said Vanilith. I want some time to think. Return to your mistress. Perhaps he saw something in Vanilith's eyes. The ghoul did not protest. Hmm, if you say so. He wisely didn't comment on the fact that Vanilith referred to the woman as your mistress, as if absolving himself of her influence. But before he left, the hunter retrieved a sword that had been strapped to his back and placed it on a tree stump. This is yours. Then he paused, inspecting Vanilith. You know, I don't mind it so much, he said. Being undead, that is. There is less hesitation to me. No voice of temperance guiding me down a path of its choosing. I'm freer than I've ever been, in a way. 
Though I obey the mistress, I know that I'm no longer the person I once was, but uh, I don't care. I'm fine. I'm free. Not my body, but my mind. I'm free of that mountain coast brand. Vanleth looked up at him. Weren't you leaving? Arimo hadn't budged, his eyes fixed on the white's forehead. But perhaps this freedom is the most frightening thing of all, he muttered. Then he turned away. Alone at last, Vanleth sat down and thought. So he had cut the necromancer's throat, and according to Arimo, she recovered. Had it all been an illusion? Had she even attempted to kill him? That was the only way that he could interpret the ritual. He'd only been saved at the last second by the voice, which he now knew to belong to the dread sovereign. It had protected him, but then he recovered, arisen, and tried to strike down his former mistress. At that point, the roles were reversed. The dread sovereign punished him, like a dog who had disobeyed his master's command, without even knowing what the command had been. Inspecting his status failed to elucidate the matters. A collis of the dread sovereign, you've attracted the attention of a greater being. Show the watcher new sights and be rewarded. Show the watcher nothing and risk losing its interest. What did the description mean? New sights, losing its interest. Was he some sort of performer, told to dance before a crowd? Before his anger could get a hold of him, he swept his hand through the words, forcing the message to dissipate. It pained him to admit it, but the only way that he was going to get answers was by interrogating the necromancer. Arimo apparently had no idea what had truly happened during the ritual. The hunter thought the madness had been a simple side effect. But even if he went to her, Vanleth couldn't imagine himself returning to the necromancer's command like before. To choose to be controlled was something that he could no longer accept, not after a betrayal like that and certainly not after learning the Watcher far above, who sought to manipulate him to its own way. In the end, however, he would only know what to do after seeing the necromancer. Since this was the case, Vanleth put these other deliberations aside. Something else was pressing him at the moment. You've qualified for a rank up. Select a class. Squire, assassin, berserker, duelist. Paths. The phenomenon which had occurred twice before once again reared its head. Only this time, Vanilith was able to read the words. Reading wasn't strictly necessary, as he still had the sense of what the paths meant without knowing the direct meaning of the words. What he saw discouraged him. Namely, it was the fact that two of the choices had been repeated. The final choice seemed to always repeat his current class, but when he ranked up last time, he knew that the first three options had been new. He didn't choose Squire earlier, and he wasn't planning on doing so now. He craved that dangerous dance, that narrow tightrope over the chasm of life and death. In this regard, Assassin appeared to fit the mold. That path was a delicate balance in its own right, but it had a problem. When he looked at it, his head wasn't turned forward, rather, he was looking back. When Vanilith turned around, he could see the route he had walked so far beginning with the flexible yet disciplined path of Saltzman, and moving on to the similar yet more dangerous one that represented Judas, where he stood now. According to the memories of his second-class selection, there should have been a vast road ahead of him, but he couldn't see it, not in any of these options. Even now, looking at the Judas class showed him only the steps he'd taken so far. But beyond that, it was just a great blank wall. If he chose it, he would only be walking the same safe route. It was growth, in a way, but it was horribly limited. 
Assassin, instead of continuing on ahead of his current position, required that he backtrack. It stood in the same position as both Judas and Squire did. He was already beyond these choices. Choosing it, then, was a regression, which Vandalith refused to allow. They left Berserker. However, this was no progression along his current route, but a different style entirely. Though he was undeniably further along his own path than the other three options, he didn't like the choice in much the same reason he didn't choose Feral when he first selected his class, or Warrior when he had the option to. Berserker wasn't weak, rather it was quite strong, but it lacked the element of control that he had been pursuing. And now, with his anger running wild in the presence of the incomprehensible Watcher above him, he wanted control more than ever. All of these options diverged too far from the path that he had already trodden down. What had changed since last time? On the first glance to the Swordsman class, he had been astounded at the sheer expanse of choices, and when he chose Judas, had he not been promised the extensive path that tested him severely but rewarded him with strength when he proved it worthy? What had happened to that? What else but that he hadn't proven worthy? When he selected Judas, Vanilith had chosen a path that had come with difficulties and dead ends than any other. He knew instinctively that choosing it was risky. That was one of the reasons that he had been attracted to the class in the first place. Now it was biting him in the rear. One final factor made him realize that he had reached the obstacle, a familiar feeling of a dam waiting to burst and appear. Vanilith sensed no pressure building up in his mind, no urgent need to select a path. The option to choose was there, but with a push of his wool, glowing characters faded to some obscure corner of his consciousness, where he was aware but not bothered by them. That was how it was. Vandalith approached the sword where Orimo left it on the ground. He picked it up, tested its weight, its balance. He took a few practice swings. Then he smashed it into the tree. Shards of bark and dead wood exploded out, showering him in debris, but he didn't stop. A second swing sent the tree tumbling over, and he moved on to the next. For the next ten minutes, sounds of violence echoed out from the grove, interspersed with rumbling booms of timber kissed the earth. Then there followed a period of silence. A tall figure emerged from within the trees. He was coated in dust, wiping down the sword with a heavy cloth, and then he stopped, his eyes falling onto two waiting figures. Separating themselves from the dead trunks they were leaning against, Anamu and Kalakai stood before him. Vanilith sheathed his sword and continued on, and the other two fell in step behind him without a word. Twenty minutes passed, and the cottage came into view. Gradually, Vanilith's steps slowed, then he came to a stop. He hesitated and was annoyed to discover that it was out of fear. It wasn't fear of the necromancer nor death, it was fear of the dread sovereign, that entity that showed him the inexplicable interest in his fates. Vandalith couldn't deny the part of himself wanted to walk away at that moment, leaving the woman and her undead to their own designs. But looking away wouldn't make the problem vanish. There were too many questions that he needed answers to. Far too many. He walked through the ranks of ghouls who made no move to stop him. They stared at him with yellow eyes, silent and unmoving. The door repaired at some point, creaked open, and Vandalith was met with Orimo's wry smile. She's inside waiting for you. Could you wear some sort of face covering before you come in? There was some rustling behind him, and Anamu proffered his mask, but Vanlith declined it. 
No mask. I wanted to talk to you, Oromo. The hunter's mouth twisted like it had bitten into a sour fruit. Me? Vanleth nodded. I see. I suppose that's fine. But the mistress has been expecting you. Could you come in and talk? He hated that he could still find himself faltering. With a growl, Vanleth strode in, pushing past Oromo. Ah! Your face? No mask. Upon entering the cottage, he was met by the sight of a woman stooped over a short table, on which she arranged various bones and small clay jars. Several of the container's lids were ajar, revealing colorful powders along with other substances. One held a black tar-like liquid, into which she had dipped a brush just as Vanleth had ducked through the door. The woman's hair covered her face, shrouding her features. As she set the brush down, she lifted her head. Vanleth was struck by the stranger's feeling as more of a countenance was revealed. Her skin was healthy, golden-brown color, and she wiped her brow with a shone with sweat. A terrible dichotomy emerged. As he looked into the eyes, they were as instinctly dark as he remembered, and she flinched away from the sight with his bare face with a pained sigh. Vanleth somehow knew. Her chest, rising and falling as the air passed through her lips, failed to hide it from him. This woman was dead. Vessel of death, you are the vessel for the death stone, the miasmic seed of Iagon. As you are the first vessel to draw upon its powers without being devoured, there is no information on its effects. End of chapter. Chapter 28 That Which Lurks Within Us, Part 1 A silent tension permeated the room. The necromancer averted a gaze from his face, though Vanilith maintained his own. A million questions swirled in his mind, the first of which was this. How could she be dead, yet not a ghoul? But she didn't even meet his eyes. Originally, as he didn't know how he would react after seeing this woman, he intended to speak with Orimo regarding his class. But now that he saw her, he couldn't stop himself. Why did you seek to have me killed in that ritual? He asked, speaking Dalkesh, so that Arimo would not understand. Killed, um, uh, yes, yes, I did that. Her tone was distant, ungrounded. Vanilith waited to see if she would continue. She did. You met him too, didn't you? She asked, answering his question with another. Vanilith thought that perhaps venting her wrath in the grove had been the correct decision, allowing his anger to leave him, though he knew that the reservoir was still lay within, far from dormant. Or, rather, it was the sight of this woman lying yet dead that shelled his momentum. He asked, Who? The master. You heard his voice. He instinctively knew whom she spoke of. She still hadn't answered his question, but he replied anyway. I saw an eye, he said, an eye. I'd never seen that, nor have I seen any part of him, but I've heard his voice, or what seems, for as long as I can remember. I've been hearing it, words, but not words. Often they are invasive, keeping me awake on long nights. Other times they sound so familiar that I think that they're my own. The voice makes me forget entire years of my life vanish all at once, and it's been eating away at me for so long. Now... The only thing left are... Uh, she cut herself off with a strange, involuntary twist of her head. As she did, the glint of metal caught Vanilith's eye, causing him to narrow his eyes. 
Something was sticking out of her neck at the base of her throat. A thin, silver needle looking closely, he found that there were several other needles in her body. One that was launched through each hand and two protruded from the crooks of her arms. The needles stuck out less than half an inch, and other than the ones in her hands, there were no telling how deeply they were embedded. There may have been more concealed elsewhere. Breaking the silence, Vandalith asked, Did your master tell you to kill me? Is that why you tricked me into taking part of the ritual? Tell me to kill. Ha! <laughs> A joke. I see you're joking now, she giggled, a manic smile peering back to her lips and revealing her teeth. No, I thought to kill you because I wished to seal him away. I thought to kill you because I hoped he might at last dig his voice out of my head. My head... She clutched the temple, smile fading. My head... Something seemed to switch in her. Her voice changed and she spoke as if she was possessed, the words spewing forth low and fast. Head is in my head, pushing aside my memories, filling me with the vile thoughts, terrible fears, ignoring the dark look in the light. There's light in a dark room, flickering, and small how is she scared of the dark when she is the dark. Don't look up. The dark draws closer. Look. At the light, it's weaker, dimmer now, fading fast, and the dark crawls closer. The woman shrunk inward, uttering string of gibberish, her arms wrapped tightly around herself, fingers clawing at her sides and back. She clutched herself so desperately that if she hadn't been wearing a thick robe, she would have definitely have drawn blood. At that moment, Iokina stepped out of the shadows behind the woman, wielding a small hammer in one hand. The hammer was a delicate, polished tool that looked more ornamental than practical. Vanilith had seen the stitched-up ghoul earlier and paid her no mind, his attention absorbed on the dead, not dead woman before him. Now, Iokina approached her mistress, and when it looked like the necromancer had stopped moving, she gingerly reached around, pulling from a pocket of the comatose woman a silver three-pronged amulet, which she held in the cord as if to admire it. This was a talisman that the necromancer used to control her ghouls, and the same amulet that she had made Vanilith touch before marching on the hunters, enabling him to command more undead than he would naturally be able to. Iokina reached out, gently tapping the two needles embedded in the woman's hands with her hammer. Then she tapped it once with the amulet, and a note sounded out, so clear that it might have been a bell if she'd struck rather than a piece of jewelry. After the noise faded, the necromancer's posture seemed to loosen, her whitened fingers relaxing where they had dug into the fabric of her clothes. Ayakina slipped the amulet back in her pocket and retreated back into the darkened corner of the cottage. After a moment, the necromancer spoke up. I apologize for that unseemly display. Your tuning will take some time yet. A tuning? Before you ask, I don't blame you for killing me, Vanilith. It was deserved. I'd been intending to die soon, anyway. The conversion of my shapes had yet to be completed, but it would have only been another month, almost, before I was ready. Despite not wearing a mask, Vanilla's face may as well have been one. What was she talking about? You should explain, he said, finding a seat for himself amongst the spare furnishings. At this time, don't leave anything out. How do you appear to be living? 
The necromancer considered the question for a moment, and then pulled the amulet from her pocket and held it out. This, she said, is me. Yesterday that was not the case, but now it is. This talisman is my phylactery. It holds my soul within it. I have become a lich, a true undead. Two years ago, a woman fled through the dark corridor, clutching a small pouch to her chest. She was in a vaulted, massive tunnel, greater than even the cavernous corridors of the Institute, where she last recalled being. Behind her, wood scraped against stone as ghouls clumsily dragged her belongings along. There were over a dozen of them, transporting various cases, perhaps filled with supplies, or perhaps empty. She wasn't sure which. Some of the undead were barely ghouls any longer, but skeletons. One held a lantern with its single hand, the light madly bobbing and swaying in its unsteady grasp. The dim light it cast failed to reach the two walls on either side, not even a speck of the distant ceiling above. Two of the undead carried what seemed to be a wrapped corpse, glancing at it caused spears of hatred to pierce her chest. She knew the only barest understanding of why she was running or how she had come to this place. In the chaos of her mind, all she knew was that she had to flee. She had to run and to find refuge and gather her strength. Only afterwards would she make them pay. Only then would she show them the consequences of her actions. Her gut ached. Oh, how it ached. Eventually, the pain forced her to stumble to a stop and lift her robe to inspect herself. There was a scar cut vertically down her navel. It was a recent injury, and it had been tended to sloppily, stitchwork barely holding her flesh together. When had this occurred? She didn't remember. She couldn't remember. The voice had begun to push away her life's memories, her very self succumbing to the influence. Why was she here? Where was she? Why were the ghouls aiding her in her escape? Why did she not remember? With her bloodless fingers, she undid a knot in the bag that she carried, peering inside. There she saw two items. The first was a silver amulet, a relic she recognized one meant to control the undead. That explained why she was being aided by the ghouls, at least. The second item she recognized as well though she didn't want to. Encased in this orb of enchanted glass, the death stone was clinking around in the interior of the bag. The death stone, like some knick-knack that she had picked up in a curio stall, the grey orb lay in her purse, fog within it rolling. She hurriedly closed the pouch, and heart pounding in sudden terror. She had the death stone. She must have stolen it. But how? When? Did it matter? They would be coming for her now. There was nowhere in the world that she could hide if they wished to find her. Then she heard the soundless voice. Hush, child. Startled as she jumped to her feet, no presence made itself known within a dim circle of light. Who's there? she called out. You need not fear the designs of man. Listen to me and you can escape the hounds that even now hunt you. Who are you? Where are you? In your purse. Look and see. Hesitantly, she did as it was bidden. Inside, she once again saw two items. This time, the death stone appeared darker than before. 
the strange fog within having retreated and left a black void in its wake. Heed my words, and you can trick them. All can be within your grasp, if you only reach out and take it. Seven months ago, with a skirt hitched up to her knees, the woman walked through the shallow water, kicking up mud with her feet. She was searching for something that was supposed to be here, but wasn't. The previous afternoon, she had placed two more fish traps in the river, bringing the total up to fourteen. The lump of anxiety worked its way up her throat when she arrived at the bank and didn't spot a single one of them. Now, she scoured the shadows for any sign of them. With luck, they'd been dragged downriver some distance and weren't too damaged. It had taken her weeks to make those traps, gathering the material, stripping the plants, twisting the fibers into twine, binding the frames and making the nets, staking them. It would have taken someone more experienced a quarter of the time it took her, but she had been proud of her efforts. This winter she was going to be entirely self-sufficient. It was the first winter since her exile, with Thyokina's campaign of slander spreading from the village of Glydia to Yayo, it was unlikely that anyone from those two villages would come to her for trades, even for minor things. Before she could trade for items, she didn't know how to make herself, clothes and tools, amongst other things. She would perform simple rituals in return, helping the villagers fix minor aches and pains, locating lost sheep or uh, giving them lucky trinkets that had minor short-lived enchantments on them. With the nearer shaman two weeks away through dangerous mountain paths, this arrangement had worked out well for both parties. That was, until it didn't. Why hadn't she thought to bring anything more useful with her from her homeland? Books, candles, chalk, and surgical instruments were all well and good, but even a tiny charstone or a simple golem aid would have saved her months of effort on the hundreds and small tasks that living out here demanded. Simple crafts were easy enough. Her training had made her quite dexterous, but anything that demanded stamina always left her feeling weakened and drained. Perhaps if she hadn't stopped the transformation halfway through this, it wouldn't have been. No... Don't think like that. She was going to live like a human, not a monster. But honestly, she could hardly believe that these people had never even heard of charstones. Back in Osteris, even the elderly widow barely scraping by could afford at least one of the magical devices to warm her hovel at night. The rumors had been true, it seemed. Whether it was the people or ideas, nothing crossed the divide. Well, except her... She was brought back to the present when something waved under the surface of the water. She plunged her hands into the icy liquid. However, rather than a net, she pulled out a handful of river weeds. She dropped the greyish wreaths back into the water, biting her lip in disappointment. She'd made her traps after watching the other woman across the river in the mornings. Her creations might not have been as sturdy as theirs, but they still shouldn't have been swept away with the current. She had made sure to state them deeply had a large fish come downstream from the lake and uprooted them. No, she could imagine one or two of them going missing because of that, but not all fourteen. A flood was equally unlikely. Those only occurred in spring, and there was no sign of damage along the bank. I only have enough smoked fish and other fruits to last me a month once the frost sets in. I should try gathering berries for preserves. No, I don't have the time for that, 
Once I had these twenty traps set up, I was supposed to gather firewood. I don't have the time to rebuild these traps. I need to find them. It's either that or starve. Then she spotted a piece of twine snagged on a protruding rock. Hope surged in her chest and she splashed forward, not minding the water that soaked into her rough spun dress. However, when she picked up the twine, all that came up were a few fragments of a shattered wood. She glanced up, finding similar pieces scattered along the bank, forming her trail. She followed it with her eyes, spotting a pile of something in the distance. She stepped out of the water, following the trail of destruction. In a daze, she picked up a longer, pointedly reusable scraps of twine, placing them on the basket that she had brought with her, though it had originally been intended to carry fish. Had a monster come down from the mountains? That couldn't be right. Much of the wood looked like it had been cut, as if by an... Stop! It was a monster, or maybe a freak flood. She refused to follow that line of thought. The idea was bubbling away, waiting to be brought forward, but she didn't recognize it. She couldn't afford to do that, to lose even more of herself. The last time she'd done that, more of her had divided. He had returned. It was all that she could do to hold on to these last few pieces of herself. What was it about her mind that led her to dwell on the darkest truths? Why couldn't she just forget? She'd forgotten plenty of other things. She was supposed to be making a new life for herself, leaving behind the past. It wasn't her fault. She did her best. It was the fault of these Yarians, these children of the mountain. No, 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 no. Stop dwelling on it. Don't think about anything. If you must think, think about the lakes of your homeland, shimmering in the vast. Think of the way the sunlight reflected off of them. How bright clouds roved across the surfaces, appearing like great leviathans swimming miles below you. Think of how you would sit on the docks and go out in a rowboat and spend hours looking into those snakes, forgetting the world. A distant laugh woke her from her memories, and she looked up from where she had been standing in the river in a daze. On the opposite bank, a group of four women were gossiping as they walked in her direction. Had she approached one of the villages... No, she was merely just a mile upstream from Yayo. Why were they so far out? They didn't seem to be fishing or picking up wild berries. This was the busiest time of the year, so a jaunt to the river seemed to be out of place. As they neared, she recognized them. They're women of Gierda. That's over six miles from here. Why would they? Then she recognized Ayakina amongst their number, and a terrible premonition settled in her gut. Ayokina appeared to have spotted her and stopped walking. Why, if it isn't the witch herself, what do you think she's up to, scrounging along the bank there? Though Ayokina was speaking to her friends, her voice was high-pitched, and she was loud enough to carry. One of them mused, perhaps she's poisoning the water. Attempting to ignore them, the woman continued her route along the bank, approaching the large pile that she had seen. As she neared it, she saw that it was burnt-out remains of a fire. What's that all this mess around here? Ayakina's musing pierced her ears. They looked like fish traps. What are they doing out of the water? They looked like nothing like fish traps. They were scraps of unrecognizable debris. A second woman taunted. Are witches unable to pull traps to withstand a gentle current? Don't speak like that, the third chided. She was from a farmer's wife. Didn't you know that her only talent is bedding men? 
She thought she heard a voice calling her in the distance. She ignored it. The fire was apparently a recent one, and it still smoked. The skeletal remains of her traps were charred black, resting on a pile of ashes. They wouldn't have burned easily, but they had been soaking in water for days, so whoever had started the bonfire must have gathered a lot of dry fuel. The voice she heard was no voice, but rather more like a far-off toting of bells. It made the woman feel suddenly dizzy. The act wasn't just cruel, it was wasteful. The second woman spoke thoughtfully. How will she make it through winter if she can't feed herself? How long did the sack of destruction take in them? Perhaps she could understand it if the traps had been stolen, but they hadn't been. Did Ayakina live the sort of life where even the smallest thing could be discarded rather than used? Did any of these women? Did the fact that Ayakina was the headman's wife in some tiny village make her immune to the concerns of poverty? I suppose she will bewitch some poor man to have him serve her. And all because the same herdswoman decided to proposition her one day seven months ago. Ayakina had taken it upon herself to destroy this foreigner never having liked the exotic woman. She amassed public opinion against her, branding her with the title of witch and exiling her. But that wasn't enough for her. The witch, as she was known, knew cruelty. She knew of cruelty far beyond any of the small, vicious acts Ayakina was capable of. Yet, somehow, this little act of destruction was going to be the final straw. After all she experienced, all she ran and ran and ran from cruelty, from her past, from the divisions of her mind, from the promises of retribution and his voice. It all came to this point, like a tiny streams adjoining together into some vast river. Ayakina drove in the final nail. She should go back to where she came from. The woman smiled, turning to stare at the group of village wives. The smile was gentle, but there was a terribleness in it. On that, they made their spiteful words stick in their throats. She smiled as she flinched, smiling as they turned and brassled off, back to the safety of their tiny village, unaware that this unknown crack of the world where they had lived their entire lives would soon become a graveyard, that the fate of all your wrong had just been decided by a wife's petty jealousy. She smiled because the woman that they taunted just decided that she had had enough of trying to live like a human. When she returned to her cabin, she approached the corner of her house where a pile of useless-looking items lay. She began to fling aside layers and mats of broken tools that she had intended to repurpose during the winter. Underneath, there was a small chest locked with a magical lock, the only chest of its kind in the entire valley. She opened it, and pressing her thumb to the keyhole, and muttering a brass phrase that had set upon knocking it the last time. It was a simple sentence, spoken in dark lash. I will never open this chest again. It opened with a click, and within it lay several vials filled with red fluid, and several more that contained a black, viscous substance. Various strange instruments were packed into the empty spaces, as well as one last item, nestled in the center, the Death Stone. Its gray-black surface appeared just as she remembered it. You have come back. Indeed, she whispered, I've returned. Let us continue where we left off. 
After preparing a simple ritual circle that encompassed her workspace, she began what she could only be described as a medical operation. She filled an odd-looking container that looked like a stomach of some animal with several vials of the black substance, raising it on a tall stand above a seat. Then she connected a spare tube on the top of the empty vial and inserted the other end into her arm. To do this, she made an incision and quickly wrapped the insertion point in a bandage. Afterwards, she repeated the process with the tube connected to the stomach-like container, inserting this tube into her other arm. Then the first vial slowly filled with blood, the second tube distended and the black fluid drained downwards, oozing its way into her veins. She shuddered as the long process began. It was going to be painful, or what was physical pain? She would complete the process this time, for the first time since the inception of brands, the bright path would be abandoned. End of chapter And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed and if you wish to support the author, the link to the original is down below. If you wish to support this channel, however, and you enjoy my work, please consider becoming a Patreon or a channel member. It would be very much appreciated, and every little bit helps this channel carry on. I will see you all in the next video, and until then, have a good one. Cheers.